0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much. So I couldn't have asked for a better introduction for what I'm going to talk to you about here today. We've heard from several of the previous speakers about the genetic legacy of interbreeding with Neanderthals. But I'm very interested in understanding what, if anything, is the phenotypic legacy in modern human populations. Is this Neanderthal DNA that remains in us, is it functional? And if so, what function does it have? And so, as as we've seen, thanks to the pioneering work of, of many of these previous speakers, we know that Neanderthal DNA remains in certain modern human populations. And if we look at a schematic, of a human chromosome here, you can think of this as a long string of A's, T's, C's, and G's, Um, I've colored in blue all the locations where we've ever observed someone living today to have Neanderthal DNA in their genome. And if you sort of look across many, many thousands of of, of European and Asian individuals, you'll see that on average around 2% of their genomes are derived from Neanderthal interbreeding, as we've heard. Different people will have a different 2%. My 2% is different than Ed's 2%, is different than Ann's 2%. And I want you to remember that because this is a really important feature that we're going to use later to try to understand the function of these different bits of Neanderthal DNA that remain in our genomes. And some parts of our genome are more likely to retain Neanderthal DNA than others. So in in one extreme, we see these Neanderthal deserts, like the position here on the uh, the right-hand side, where we've never observed anyone to have Neanderthal DNA. And then on the left-hand side, we have the other extreme, where we have up to 60% of European individuals, if you went out and sequenced a bunch of European people, would have uh, Neanderthal DNA at that location. And so ultimately, this suggests that Neanderthal DNA had an influence on our ancestors after the interbreeding. In some cases, perhaps positive, in other cases, perhaps negative. And so for me, this, this, this raised a very big question that, that I really wanted to answer. It's okay, so then what is the phenotypic legacy of this Neanderthal interbreeding and the DNA that remains from it in modern humans? And so I, I hope, if you, if you remember nothing else from my talk, really just two main points. The first is that, indeed, interbreeding with Neanderthals has left a phenotypic legacy in modern humans. And the way I'm going to go about trying to show what that legacy has been is using a sort of new type of resource that's just becoming available, um, and that's of large clinical biobanks with electronic medical records from patients, from hospitals, linked to genetic information. And this is a really, really powerful resource for studying the genetics of disease, but I also think it's a really, really powerful resource for studying the genetics of our recent evolution. And so if you want to, you can go to sleep now and just remember those two things, and I won't won't blame you. So basically, we we got the idea for this project because I collaborate with a a big national consortium called the Electronic Medical Records and and Genomics Network. And what this is, it's, it's a collaboration of about 10 academic hospitals from across the nation that have electronic medical record systems implemented in their their hospitals, and also genetic information from those patients linked to their electronic medical records. And so this looks a little something like this, where on the left-hand side, we have John Doe's patient record. He's been coming to the hospital and seeing doctors, let's say, for the last 10 years, and we've got records of, of all those events and all the treatments he's received in that electronic form. And then someday John comes in to have blood drawn. And he says, yeah, actually it'd be okay if you use any leftover material from, from this blood draw uh, for basic medical research. And if he's consented to do that, then all that information is is sent through a de-identifying process where all the identifying information is removed from, from that electronic medical record, but the basics of the, the treatment history are maintained. And then the blood sample is also passed through and biobanked and given an ID that links it up to that anonymized version of the electronic medical record. And now this is really powerful because it enables us to do genetic association testing on a very large scale. So what, what is genetic association testing? Well, we can t- let's imagine we've got a number of patients here for which we have these, these, these biobanked blood samples. And let's say we're interested in studying something about their genetics. Well, we can look at these blood samples and see at one given position in their genome whether or not they have an A, T, C, or G. And so in this example, patient 1 has an A, patient 2 has an A, and then patient N has a G. And let's say we're also interested in heart disease and whether or not this particular location in those patients' genome has any effect on their risk for heart disease. What we can do is then go look in their electronic medical record and say, all right, well, has this person ever been treated for heart disease? And let's say in this case, we find that yes, patients one and two have, and then patient N has not. And once we have that information, we can perform statistical tests for association between these individuals' DNA at that given position in their genome and whether or not they've ever been treated for heart disease. And so in this simplistic example, we might say that yes, Having an A at this location in your genome increases your risk for heart disease. Now, of course, we don't normally do this on three people. We do this on tens of thousands of people to try to find significant associations between regions of our genome and disease. And so, now, this is all well and good, but let's say we're interested in another disease. Let's say we're interested in arthritis and the genetic basis for arthritis, well, if we didn't have this electronic medical record system, we'd have to go out and collect a whole another cohort of people that had arthritis and then some matched control people that didn't have arthritis and then genotype them and then test whether or not the genetic loci had any effect on the risk. But because we have the electronic medical record system, we can instead just go look in the record and say, all right, let's find a new set of cases and controls for arthritis and perform genetic association tests, again, on the genetic information we already have. So that, that's all well and good, but we're here because we care about human origins and human evolution. So let's, let's get back to that. How can we use this kind of data to answer this question about the effects of the Neanderthal DNA that remains in modern human populations? And so what we did was to start with data from this large, eMERGE electronic medical records and genomics network from across the country. We got data for about 28,000 patients from from across the country. And we first looked at their genotypes. We first found genetic information from about 600,000 positions across their genomes. And so you can think of this as a string, again, of about 600,000 A's, T's, C's, and G's that we've associated with each one of these patients. And then what we realized we could do was use these great high-quality maps of, of Neanderthal DNA that remain in, remains in, in modern human populations that you've heard about from Sri Ram and Josh. And so we could look at those maps and then intersect them with our own patients and apply those techniques to our patients' genomes and identify regions where each patient had Neanderthal DNA. And so we could do this for about 1,500 of these positions in, in these patients' genomes. And we can see where some may have Neanderthal DNA and others may not. Um, and then finally, the last piece, as I indicated before, comes from using these electronic medical record data to define a set of phenotypes or traits for each of these patients. We can ask for hundreds of different phenotypes covering the whole spectrum of things you might be treated for uh, by a doctor, whether or not each of these people either had that, had that disease, they were a case, or they were a control, or we couldn't really figure it out and we should leave them out of the analysis. And so then using this this matrix of data, of genetic data annotated with Neanderthal ancestry, and then many, many different phenotypes, we were able to start testing for the effects of Neanderthal DNA on a much broader scale than, than really had been, had been possible before. And so before I get into what we, we actually find, I'll, I'll try to be a good scientist and think about what we would expect to find before actually running the experiment. And so what did we expect? Now, as... Um, uh, the, the as modern humans migrated out of uh, out of Africa, where where they first appeared, they encountered a, a number of different environments. So they encountered different climates, you know, different levels of, of sun exposure, different temperatures, different um, different sort of seasonal patterns. They also kind of different animals and plants that led to different diets, and very importantly, they also encountered different pathogens. And so it's been proposed that perhaps by interbreeding with Neanderthals and Denisovans and perhaps other archaic human forms that had been living in these environments for hundreds of thousands of years, in many cases before anatomically modern human groups ever arrived there, perhaps there really was some adaptive benefit you could get from you know spending a night with a Neanderthal. Maybe that was <laughs> not such a bad a bad bad trade off. Um, but but so. But, you know, but this is really a hypothesis. This hasn't, hasn't been shown at all. Um, so under, under this hypothesis, we, we might expect that the Neanderthal DNA that, that could have been adaptive in, in our modern human populations would have been um, influencing human traits that are involved in interactions with the environment. So things like our immune system would, of course, be one of the most important. But our skin, perhaps and you know, perhaps also our metabolism or, or other traits related to our diet. And so um, we, we also expected that we'll, we might see some effects on our, our bone or skeletal structure, because we also know about many important differences, or many, many very easily detectable differences between uh, the bones of anatomically modern humans and, and Neanderthals. So those are some of the things we were expecting as we went into this analysis. So what did we find? And now... In doing this analysis, uh, we, we, we decided to split up our data, our 28,000 individuals, into two different sets. A discovery cohort of about 13,500 individuals, in which we'd run an initial analysis, and then a replication cohort in which we would try to replicate anything that we, we found in that first cohort. So in the discovery, I'm going to show you just some of the top associations we found between Neanderthal DNA and potential phenotypes in a European, anato- European ancestry, anatomically modern human populations. And so when I saw this, I, I almost couldn't believe it, because so what do we see at the top? We see osteoporosis, a bone trait. Then we see hypercoagulable state. So, so what is that? That's just uh, blood clotting. Your blood's too thick. It clots too much, which can lead to all sorts of problems. Then we see protein-calorie malnutrition, a metabolic trait. And so this is really surprisingly matching sort of what we We expect it. But before I go too far into interpreting these, let's talk about that that replication analysis I mentioned. So what we did here is we looked at the other 14,500 individuals we left out of the initial analysis and tested to see whether we saw consistent effects in that group. And so luckily for for four of these top uh, associations I'm telling about, we did see something consistent. We did see a consistent effect. Unfortunately, the, the osteoporosis one did, did, did not replicate there. And I should say, just as an aside, I don't think that necessarily means it's not true, but, um, but it's, it's sort of notoriously difficult sometimes to replicate these genetic associations, and we're following that up in some other cohorts. But so let's focus on, on, on these four that, that, that did replicate. So first, we, we have this hypercoagulable state association that I already talked a little bit about. So this means that your blood coagulates very quickly. And this is actually a very important part of the early immune response. The coagulation factors are like really some of the first proteins that pathogens interact with when they come into your body. And so this really fits in with this idea of the potential um, immune benefits. And we've looked into the molecular basis for, for this association, and we've actually been able to show that the Neanderthal DNA nearby— um, sorry, this Neanderthal DNA that is associated with increased co- coagulation— increases the level of several nearby coagulation factors in your blood. So we have a, a very compelling sort of molecular mechanism for how that might be, might be happening. And now, I'm sure by now you've read the rest of this list and seen one that's sort of a little bit more difficult to interpret, right? And that's tobacco use disorder. And so that really just means addiction to nicotine. And so I think, you know, should we, should we be thinking about this? We're Neanderthals sitting around outside of caves smoking, and I, I want to say unequivocally, no, no, we cannot, we cannot say this, you should not say this, you should not think this. Um, this, this extreme example um, highlights a really important point, that the effects of genetic variation in modern environments may not actually reflect its effects 50,000 years ago against a very different genetic background in Neanderthals or in early human Neanderthal hybrids. And on top of that, of course, tobacco is a new world plant. They didn't really have nicotine existing in their environment. So, but what this does tell us is that Neanderthal DNA in modern humans is influencing a system in our body that, that is now, in modern environments, relevant to this trait. And in particular, this bit of Neanderthal DNA is very nearby a, transmitter, a transporter for a neurotransmitter called GABA that's involved in all sorts of, uh, of important processes in the brain and, you know, even may have a role in circadian processes. So we don't really know what might have been um, behind this, this association. So now just to move on, I want to tell you about one more analysis that we did. So in that first set of tests, we were testing for the effect of one bit of Neanderthal DNA with one trait, in a human population. But we wondered, well, what if we looked at all the Neanderthal DNA that a person might or might not have in aggregate and asked whether or not that could predict, better predict someone's risk for a disease? And so we did an analysis of that. Um, and again, we found several very interesting um, associations that replicated. And now I think this, this top one is really, really fascinating. It's Neanderthal DNA. If I know your Neanderthal DNA complement... I can better predict your risk for actinic keratosis, and this is a. a, In case you don't know, this is a a skin disease. It's not. It's not terribly serious. It's. It's often seen in fair-skinned people after long-term sun exposure, and it's caused by malfunctioning of a gene of of a type of cell in your skin called keratinocytes. and I, I find this so fascinating for, for really several reasons, because keratinocytes, one of their main functions is protecting our skin from UV radiation. So again, a very important uh, environmental difference between, between Africa and, and other non-African environments. But they're also really intimately involved in early stages of the innate immune response and signaling for, for the activation of other immune factors. When, when we look at patterns of where Neanderthal DNA falls in our genome, we see that many of the Neanderthal uh, high-frequency Neanderthal bits of DNA are nearby genes that are involved in keratin biology. And so this is sort of taking it to the next step and showing not only is it enriched nearby those genes, but actually in modern populations, it's having an effect on a phenotype that's very relevant to keratin. So, um, but again here, we'll see there's a, uh, a second... Um, kind of confusing or at least more complicated to interpret association that we need to think about, and that's depression. Um, and so again, I really want to be very clear that this is not what we should be thinking about. Neanderthals, we cannot say they were depressed. We cannot blame them for any depression we have. These are very complex phenotypes with major environmental components and many other genetic components. And the Neanderthal influence is really quite modest in, in, in the whole constellation of all the, 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 the contributions to them. So, so, in conclusion, I want, I want you to remember that interbreeding with Neanderthals has indeed left a phenotypic legacy in modern humans. And in particular, it's, it's left uh, effects on, on many different systems in our bodies our immune systems, our skin, our, our, our metabolism, and in fact, even likely our brains. And so, I think largely because of the nature of the data sets we've been looking at, we've, we, we've, we've found many cases where the Neanderthal DNA has a, has a mildly deleterious effect in modern environments. But again, I want to remind you that's not necessarily true um, 50,000 years ago when, we, when this interbreeding likely occurred. And so one of the main challenges going forward is, is trying to understand what knowing something about Neanderthal DNA in a modern environment can actually tell us about what was happening back then. And so then the second point I wanted you to remember is that this was all enabled by using a new type of resource, these large-scale databases of tens or hundreds of thousands of electronic medical records from from patients linked up to genetic information. And so I think just as the ability to sequence people's DNA at large scale has dramatically changed our understanding of the genetic basis of human evolution over the past five or ten years, thanks to many of the speakers in the symposium— I think that leveraging these sorts of data and these sorts of projects that are popping up all over the world will allow us to do the same thing for the the phenotypic basis of recent human evolution. And so with that, I would like to say thank you all very much for listening and and thank all of my collaborators. And uh, yeah, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.